This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. The beauty of the subscription model is that for the first time in our history, we now are baking the relationship directly into how we make money. That's the voice of Patrick Campbell. He's the co-founder and CEO of ProfitWell. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hey there, I'm Michael Momsen. So today we are talking about pricing. We're digging deep into the trenches of understanding how the money exchange works between customers and businesses and what it means for customer experience. Yes, absolutely. We cover one of the tough conversations in business, like pricing. It's so hard to get right. It's hard to know if your price is too high or too low. And in this episode, we walk away with so many practical tips around signals of when your price is too low and also how to actually increase your prices. That's exactly right. So, let's jump into it. We started out by asking Patrick... How does pricing affect customer experience? So, the thing about pricing or your price, and it doesn't matter if you're the customer or the business, um, but for the business in particular, your price is the exchange rate on the value that you're providing, right? And there's a lot of ways you can influence the signaling of that value with your price. So, if I go to you know, a, a very premium coffee shop and uh, I walk in and it's like very fancy and minimalist and, you know, there's like one little vase with one little flower on it and, you know, the barista, the menu has like three things on it and, you know, it takes 10 minutes for the guy or the gal to grind the beans and then to like make the coffee and to put a little design on the milk and all these different things. All of a sudden I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, this is like a $10 cup of coffee, right? Whereas if I go into, you know, a 7-Eleven or a convenience store and I have to go and I get this, you know, styrofoam cup and I, you know, drip this coffee out of the spigot, um, you know, oh, that's probably going to be a dollar, right? And so I think it's one of those things where the experience influences your price immensely because you can kind of choose where you live within that spectrum. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't think about that. A lot of people think about, well, hey, I made this thing and they're either really, really arrogant and they think, oh, this is worth so much, right? And they put like too high of a price and then the customer looks at it and they're like, that's not that's not worth that much. Um, or they're too insecure and they're like, oh, well, this only took me a weekend. It's not really worth much. And then the customer's like, oh, that's worth so much. They must not be able to actually do what they claim they are doing because the price is too cheap. And so short answer to your question is, is it, it influences a lot, mainly because it's a signal of that value that's in that exchange rate. Can I ask then, so you gave two examples of a, of, you know, a really premium coffee and a really cheap coffee. Which of those do customers enjoy more? Does the price impact the value that they're receiving? Assuming the product is very similar, the end product is very similar. Assuming the product is similar, let's let's just assume that the coffee is actually the same. Like objectively, we look at it, it's the same coffee, it's the same taste, all that kind of stuff. I think that what's really interesting about price is that each person has the ability to value their experience at the exact same level of like happiness because it's more of an expectations game, right? So when I go to Equinox Gym, so I'm a member of Equinox Gym. It's a fancy gym. It's the most expensive thing I've ever purchased in my life. Like just so crazy. <laughs> like I can't believe I'm spending this money on like a gym. It's like one of those things where it's like, you know, a few hundred bucks a month and like they have the lotion in the like, you know, in the bathroom and all this other, like all these 
fancy things, right? Yeah. My expectations are so high, right? So when I walk in there and the bathroom's not clean, I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm spending this much money and the bathroom's not clean. But when I go to Planet Fitness, which is like 20 bucks a month, you know, it's a big box gym essentially. My expectations are so low that like when they have the bathroom clean, I'm like, oh my God, this place is amazing. It's only $20, right? So I think it's it's less that the $10 cup of coffee is happier or not as happy as the $1 coffee. It's more of the expectations that those customers see um, really is what the influence on the happiness really looks like. A great way to maybe boil that down is price sets expectations. Absolutely. It sets expectations and it's one of those things where it's it's that equilibrium between the customer and the business when it comes to that value. So, you specialize in helping subscription businesses, namely uh, software subscription businesses, work out right levels of pricing, why customers leave, churn, etc. One of the hot topics is how do you even figure out what the right price is for your service? Can you maybe sort of talk us through an ideal journey of trying to figure out what your ideal price is? Really what we recommend for people who are thinking about their pricing, which is not just the number that you're charging, but it's your packaging, your positioning, your value metric, all these different things, is first understanding who are those buyers, right? And a lot of folks, they'll go to buyer personas, you know, that, you know, HubSpot, Marketo have been talking about for years now. uh, And they'll be like, oh, well, we sell to developers, right? Well, it has to be much more quantified than that. It has to be, hey, we sell to this type of customer service person at this size company. Uh, they have these three tools that they use and um, this is what they care about and this is what they don't care about. And, and once you start to find who that buyer is, then really the, the way that you quantify that buyer, but also the way you find that price is you actually go to those those people and you actually ask them. Uh, you have to ask in the right way. And if you get garbage data in, you're going to get garbage output out. But that's the biggest thing is like actually talking to those buyers, talking to them in the right way, and then using that data to understand where you should be priced. Let's say my business knows who my ideal customer is and the personas know the problem that we solve. Talk us through that process of how to unravel this black box of finding your ideal pricing. The first thing I do is I do go to like 10 to 20 people individually face-to-face or on the phone or on a Zoom call over coffee. Uh, It's not a sales conversation though. I mean, it shouldn't be positioned as a sales conversation. This is very like customer development 101 where you're like, hey, I just want to get some feedback on, you know, what we're trying to do here. Or, hey, you mentioned you have this problem. Like, I just want to learn a little bit more about that problem. Just to quickly clarify, this is for potential customers. You wouldn't do this to your existing customers? It depends on the pricing problem you're going after. If I'm doing this for the first time, I would actually talk to potential customers and your current customers. And there's actually three groups. I would talk to your current customers. I would talk to your prospects, meaning people who have heard of you but haven't purchased yet. And then I would talk to people who have never heard of you but are in your target customer subset, right? Uh, And the way you get those is through introductions, especially for these one-on-one meetings. We have these three different groups. And then I want to go talk to them about here's what we're thinking and asking them a ton of questions. And you basically want to treat them like you're a um, prosecuting attorney, right? You don't want to lead the witness. You want to say like, hey, like, tell me about this problem. And they tell you about this problem. And then you ask them further questions. And when it comes to pricing, there's two methodologies that we typically recommend using. So if you think about any traditional pricing page, even if it's a retail product, you have these two axes. Your first axis is basically the features that are in these different tiers or these different offerings. So one tier might have, you know, the good version, the better version, the best version. You know, one one tier might have this integration, one tier might have this many of this or this many of that. And then 
the other axis is the actual price. So the actual price on those tiers. Now for me to figure out, hey, what features do these people care about? I'm going to go to this person. I'm going to say, hey, listen, we just, thanks for all this information. Let me kind of show you what we're working on. Show them the products, show them the information, give them a little demo and then say, hey, we just talked about these five things. What's the most important out of that list of five things, these five features? And they'll sit there and they'll be like, oh, I think this is pretty important, but this is probably the most important if you forced me. Then I'll say, cool. What's the least important in that list? Now, what happens is with those two questions, essentially, I start to figure out across 10 to 20 people, oh, cool, everyone keeps caring about analytics. No one really gives a hoot about these integrations, right? And what that allows me to do is I could start to figure out, oh, where should those packages go? Well, I need to include analytics either in everything or I need to include it only in the premium tiers. And that's going to be a judgment call based on you know my product vision, right? The second set of questions is around the price. And these questions in an in-person interview, um, normally I'd only ask two, but I'd go to the person, I'd say, okay, in terms of pricing, in terms of the value of this product that I'm talking about, at what point is this so expensive that you would just never return my phone call again? <laughs> what's absurd? <laughs> yeah, like what's absurd, right? And they'll be sit there and they might like, you know, oh, I don't know, like, you know, 200 bucks. And you'd be like, okay, cool. And at what point is it such a good deal? Like you'll sign the contract today. They're like, well, you know, I need this thing and that thing, but like, oh, 50 bucks. And all of a sudden with those two answers, I now have a little bit of a range that, oh, I'm between 50 and $200, which is like a very wide range, right? But then I'm going to go ask 20 people. And then all of a sudden I can start to figure out where that range is. Now, after I've talked to these 10 to 20 people, now I start to get a picture of, okay, I have all this information from these people. I have all this like vision information that I have. I have all this research that I have. Now I actually want to kind of quantify this and actually start to validate this on a larger scale. So we'd use those two methodologies that I talked about, a little bit of extended from what I'm mentioning right now. And then I'd set up an actual survey and I'd go out to about 100 to 200 people across my customers, my prospects. And then that'll actually give you some really good um, price elasticity information, which will actually show us like, are we a commoditized product? Are we a product that has a lot of pricing power, meaning you know, there's a lot of room to raise our prices or change our prices? And then I would do this cycle over and over again, applying those methodologies to different types of my pricing problem. It inevitably gives us more and more information about the value of our product to these different customers. And we just keep refining it using you know, a product process or whatever kind of process that you currently use to kind of collect research and things like that. And out of interest, do most people get this wrong? I think it's Mark Andreessen that has the famous quote, if there's one bit of advice to all companies, it would be raise prices. <laughs> um, yeah, I think most people get pricing completely wrong. It's unfortunately out of pure laziness because the thing is, is like doing this, like it's never going to be perfect. I guarantee you it's never going to be perfect. And then you have Mark Andreessen and other people saying, oh, raise your prices, raise your prices. And the reason they say raise your prices is because most people don't put any thought into it. And so raising your prices inevitably works because they haven't put enough thought into it. In reality, doing a little bit of this research, because the price is more than just like the actual number, it's your packaging and all that other fun stuff I talked about. You just have to bake this into your regular research process. And the irony of me saying that is that most of us aren't doing our research because we're just throwing a bunch of stuff up against the wall and hoping it sticks because we think, oh, feedback. Yeah, yeah, I'll get that eventually when I hit mm. like a rough patch. The only way you're going to get to this and the only way you're going to get to your pricing is by talking to your customers. And you don't always have to listen to them. You can say, yeah, these guys have no idea what they're talking about. But you do have to listen to them in the sense of like doing your due diligence. 
So it's effectively taking a scientific approach to the pricing method and you're using design thinking like methodology around research uh, in that. So how do you actually know if your prices are too high? Is it as simple as your conversion rates are lower and your churn is higher and, and they say, oh, your price is too high? And it, sometimes people can say price, but really what they mean is something else. Like we didn't get around to actually implementing this properly or I have other priorities in my business and they tell you price, but maybe it's actually not price. Yeah. So I think normally the litmus test is um, if you're collecting information as to why people are churning, like canceling their the subscription, you want to make sure that some people are saying it is the price. That's the reason why they're canceling. So a lot of people will say like, oh, it's the price, it's the price, it's the price, right? Now you have to like qualify those responses. But if you're getting no one who's saying that, then your price is definitely more than likely way too low. The other thing is, is if you look at your ARPU, your average revenue per user, if that isn't going up over time, and it doesn't need to go up dramatically, but if it's flat for like a year or two years or something like that, then you typically have a pricing problem because ARPU is influenced by raising your price. It's also influenced by the type of customers that you have. So are you getting more premium customers? And it's also influenced by, you know, is there expansion revenue or contracting revenue, right? And so if your pricing isn't giving you an increase in ARPU over time, that means there's probably something wrong with what you're doing and, and it's time to kind of take a look. Now, if it's going up and your churn is massive and everyone's everyone, like 80% of people are saying the price is the problem, then there's probably a problem with who you're targeting, right? Um, because you could lower your price and, and maybe those things would go away. Um, but more than likely, you're just targeting completely the wrong type of customer because, again, it's that exchange rate and the value that you're providing that you have to think about. What's interesting here is I, I kind of initially thought that, you know, you always want to aim for the highest price possible because that's probably where you're going to make the most profit. But that's not necessarily the case depending on, you know, this value equation that you're having with customers. And so, I want to spend a couple of minutes just talking about the customer's perspective and that can be either a business-to-business transaction or a business-to-consumer transaction. But when a customer is looking at a pricing page on a website or on a pamphlet or just, you know, a verbal quote for, you know, this coffee is going to cost you $10, when they hear a price or a range of prices... What's kind of the mental calculation that's going through their mind and how is that impacting the experience they have in that moment? It goes back to the expectations, right? Normally what's going through people's mind is, hey, is this thing, whatever it is, you know, software, cup of coffee, whatever, is it worth the dollar amount that you're asking me to pay? And sometimes that works in your favor, right? So if I go to a very high end, you know, I don't buy purses, but like if I was buying a purse, right? And it was like, oh, this is a $2,500 Fendi bag or something like that. I'm like, oh, cool. This must be worth it. You know, my girlfriend's going to love me because I'm buying her this very expensive thing, right? But if it was only $50, I might be sitting here and be like, oh, she's probably not going to like it because it was cheap, right? Like, because we have this weird money equals premiumness, right? So there's a little bit of um, that and it's more in retail, but that also works in software sometimes where, especially on the low end, like, you know, if you're saying, hey, we're going to solve all, all of these problems and it's 50 bucks, people are going to be like, oh, that, that's it's not even worth us having a demo, right? So there's a good balance there in terms of the expectations game. So let's say you go through this process and then you realize, oh, shit, 
like our prices have been too cheap. <laughs> How do you actually go about raising prices? Would you just do it for new customers? Would you go it to your base? And if you go it to your base, how do you increase price without losing customers? The short answer is, is very carefully. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the longer answer is, is the first thing you got to do is you got to do some of your research. If you do your research, you're a lot more confident with what the change is going to be. You're not going to be 100% confident. And the other thing to kind of keep in mind is that any price change, you lower your price, you change your price, you raise your price, you are going to lose customers. And I think a lot of people, they want to do exactly what you just said is I don't want to lose any customers, but I want to change literally the center of the business, like making the money, right? The thing though, is like when you do your research and you realize, okay, hey, we can increase our price by 20%. And if you can only increase your price by like two to 3% or something small like that, it's not worth it. Or like, hey, we need to dramatically change. We need to have a value metric. We don't have a value metric right now. Or, hey, we need to you know move these features because it just doesn't make sense. Any of these bigger changes, the most important thing is just to be very upfront and honest with your customers. Mm. And what I mean by that is you should go talk to them and say, listen, hey, like we have to make these changes. If you haven't made changes ever, be like, hey, we've never changed our pricing. Go deep into like we did a bunch of research. We've added all this value. We've added all these features. This is something where like we want to make sure we can continue to provide you more and more value. And in order to do that, we need to expand our business and we need to raise our prices. And then what I like to do is I like to talk about here's where your price is. Here's where price is going to be. But because you've been such a loyal customer, because you've been so helpful, we're going to give you a six-month grandfather discount or a 12-month grandfather discount. So your price isn't going to change. Everyone else is going to get the price increase. Your price isn't going to increase for six to 12 months or however long it is. Um, and then the thing I like to do at the end of the email is go, P.S., if this materially impacts your business, please reach out and we'll see if we can work something out. And the reason that you do that is because all of these different pieces are lowering your churn because you're like, okay, cool. I've never changed prices. Okay, yeah, I get it. That's fine. I still see the value, et cetera. Oh, the six-month discount. Okay, cool. I'm getting a little bit of value. And then that last part is people like me who even though I'm a pricing person, like I like to get things cheap and you know, because we're a bootstrap business, um, I read something like that and I go, Oh, I'm not an asshole. Like, I'm not going to be an asshole. Like, it's not going to materially impact my business. Like, uh, no, cool. so I'm not going to kick up a stink. Yeah, totally. And then normally what I do before this, before I do this email or this blog post and or blog post and email is I'll do an analysis of like what the effect is on my customer base, meaning, you know, anyone who and then anyone who has maybe like a 50% or more price increase, I'll like individually reach out to and I'll talk to them. Or in some cases, I just won't make the price as high as, as I should. And that's something to kind of think about. Like a lot of us are so off on our pricing that if we're not in dire straits, we probably shouldn't triple our price. We should like say, hey, we're going to raise this over the next three years gradually. Um, but I do recommend um, always raising your prices on your existing customer base. And the reason is, and it's a little bit controversial, is that for one, it's really easy to say, hey, we're not going to raise our prices on our existing customers until you get to $10 million in revenue then it's really hard to maintain growth rates without raising your prices in some way on your existing customer base. And some people, they try to come out with new products, but it's really hard to make one product good, if not 
three products, right? The other reason is, is because you're training your customers just to keep expecting more and more for less. Um, and you just kind of, you basically engender this kind of resentment, ironically, that happens where some of these customers who are paying you $10 a month, and now you're charging new people a hundred bucks a month, you're just going to start resenting them more and more, especially when they have support requests and all these different things. So train your customers to expect, hey, when the value increases, you know, the price is going to increase and you'll see some churn, but that churn is normally the people who just weren't the best customers in the first place kind of churning off. Um, And if you've done your research, if you've done your communication, normally you're in a pretty good place. Um, If you haven't done that and you just try to do a nice email, it's going to be a little bit of a crap show because you'll get people tweeting and all kinds of fun stuff because you just were very tone deaf to, to people. The other thing that I would say is that a lot of times when it comes to customers, they're very reasonable and they understand like things cost money. A lot of us don't. We're like, oh, we're so scared. It's like religion, sex, and politics. We're like scared to talk about pricing, right? Um, they realize things cost money and you just have to treat them like humans and you'll be fine. So, Patrick, welcome to the Quickfire Round. This is our rapid-fire game show segment where you've got 10 seconds to answer (laughs) each question. Are you ready to go? Let's do it. I'm in the zone. All right. First question. Patrick, what brand do you look to as an example of great customer experience? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Bloomberg. It's the first one that came to mind. Very good. What job did you learn the most in? I worked in the intelligence community in DC um, for the US government. And so lots of things I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you then. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was the coolest. It was it was the, the most impactful, like high learned job. Yeah. So you're like a you're like a secret agent. <laughs> <laughs> well I joke. It's uh it's I'm 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 basically Jack Ryan, but the desk job, not any of the stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. What skill are you terrible at? Oh, so many things. Um I would say I'm 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 pretty terrible at keeping my desk clean. Like that's a good <laughs> that's a good one. And most other things like organized. Like I'm not a very like organized person, even though I want to be very organized. What job did you enjoy the most? I mean, besides this one, I really do enjoy my job now. I think the job that I enjoyed the most. I was a barista at Starbucks for five years in high yeah, school right. and college. Uh, there, there wasn't the Australian coffee movement then, so you can't blame me for working at a Starbucks. But it was really, really enjoyable because it was very customer service, customer kind of uh, care oriented. And that's where I learned a lot about that. What's the best advice you've ever received? The advice I keep coming back with, I don't know if it's the best, but it's one that I, I say often, um, is that problems only get bigger. Uh, and so you can let those problems get bigger if you need to, because you got to focus on a different problem, but it's better to, to solve things as quickly as soon as possible. Patrick, what non-work related thing are you into right now? There are no non-work related things. Uh, <laughs> no, there really isn't. Uh, I, I will say the one non, non-work thing, but I think it's work related is I'm trying to get um, fit and healthy again. So I've gained about a hundred pounds since the start of this company. Um, so six years now, um, and it's it's gone up and down. But it, and it's not all the company's fault. But uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to work on. It's not directly related to work. I'm interested. Where do you go to upskill? Uh, is it like books, YouTube, podcasts? What's your your channel of choice? Uh, my favorite thing is actually Google Scholar. 
So Google Scholar, a lot of like, if you think about books, a lot of times it's either watered down or summarized and you're not getting to like the actual core of the understanding of the thing you're trying to learn. And I find Google Scholar has a lot of the original material that a lot of people really want to read, especially in like business or anthropology or uh, psychology and those types of things. Um, so that's where I typically go for, for a first source um, if I want to dig into something. And finally, Patrick, what is your guilty pleasure? I just bought a PS4 and I haven't played <laughs> video games in like 10 years. Um, so it's the guilty pleasure of the moment. Um, I think my more consistent guilty pleasure uh, is probably a little too much Netflix um, to be, if I, if I was being very, very honest. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the PS4 is going to go. Um, it'll have a good four week run here and then um, it'll be never seen again or probably for another <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> So, Patrick, I want to switch gears as we go into the final stretch, which is just talking about what it takes to run a successful subscription business. And so, subscription models have been around for a long time, right? Like uh, utility bills, telcos, etc. But everyone's trying to uh, move to subscription, both with the rise uh, in software and both in B2B and consumer products, Netflix, um, Spotify, as well as like home delivery. <laughs> All kinds of stuff, yeah. Wouldn't mind just getting your view on why are we seeing this broad shift into subscription businesses? And then we can then unpack what it takes to be a successful subscription business. The beauty of the subscription model is that for the first time in our history, we now are baking the relationship directly into how we make money. So I'm going to sell you this piece of software or this you know, package of meat or whatever it ends up being. <laughs> it's worth this much. You know, I'm going to give it to you. You're going to be like, yep, I got the value. Or you're going to be like, nope, this isn't worth it. And then the next month runs around, you're going to cancel, right? Now, the reason that the rise of this is happening right now, there's business implications. So the business is great because you compound the growth. Um, it's a lot easier for people to dip their toe in the water with a short-term you know, subscription versus trying to buy something really big for life up front. There's a lot of implications around just compounding growth, and it's just good business from like a balance sheet perspective. But the reason this is happening, in, even independent of that, is because measuring that relationship that I just talked about has now become easier and easier. If you even just think of like billing systems, and I've learned more about billing systems than I think I ever wanted to in my life, but like <laughs> subscription billing systems, like if you wanted to do that 15 years ago, it was a huge pain in the butt. It was so annoying to figure out like you had to build a bunch of custom code. You had to have like four or five developers like in a room working on this. It's kind of like you know, we don't do our own hosting anymore, right? Totally. And I remember I worked with telcos a lot in my early career when I was at, at BlackBerry. And if they just wanted to create a new telco plan, it could take them up to like three, six months to just get the billing system to create a new $49 plan with 200 meg of data. <laughs> like actually subscription billing platforms are incredibly complex. And you have to measure it because you have to measure that 200 megs and that has to kick it over to the billing. So, like there's so many things that are really, really complicated. And so... I think that was the big thing that really impacted, like started the rise of the subscription world is like, one, we can now measure it, uh, measure the usage. For subscription meet, it's really easy. Like how many things are you getting? But even the logistics of that are actually quite complicated. The 200 megs, we can now measure that, kick it back to the billing system. We can charge on a recurring basis and you know we can, we can attract those customers on a recurring basis. So you have this like nice little vortex of just you know, the perfect storm, if you will, of, of things happening to kind of influence this, you know, and I hate to use this because everyone uses it now, but 
this like relationship economy, right? Where, you know, we can actually have a relationship that's not like me being a store vendor, you know, 20 years ago where I'm like, oh, you bought this item. I'm hoping and praying you come back next week or next month when it's out and buy it again. Oh, to help you, I'm going to put these ads in a paper, you know, for you to bring a coupon in, right? Now it's like, I'm giving you a good experience. You see it's a good experience. Great. Buy the product again, right? It's automatically going to bill you. That's awesome. I think it's a really good thing. Now there's a bunch of nefarious things that are happening with this. Like some of these things that are subscriptions probably shouldn't be, but you know, it's one of those things where it's an interesting time to be in this market. You specialize and you look at thousands of businesses that are that have these subscription models. I'm interested to understand what's at the kernel of successful subscription businesses. And clearly the kernel is they're not losing customers, right? So the churn is low and they continue growing. Do you mind just sharing some perspectives on those key themes? It's not even just not losing customers, it's expanding the current customers you have. So the healthiest you know, subscription uh, recurring revenue businesses, they not only have minimal gross churn, so meaning if you just look at you know, those 100 customers you described, they have a minimum number that you know, churn or cancel by the end of that year um, or three years or however you measure it. Uh, but they also have those existing 98, let's say, expand to overcome the two that might have left in that scenario, right? And so normally like the best subscription companies we see, they're doing 20 to 30% of their monthly revenue as expansion revenue, meaning it's on the existing customer base that's buying more, either a different product, more of the existing product, a whole host of things. I think some of the best folks that we see, they take that relationship to heart and that experience to heart. And so if you think about, and, and like the dating metaphor is kind of so overused when it comes to business, but if you truly are trying to get into a relationship with someone in the long term, there's a lot of things you don't do up front, right? You don't bait and switch. You don't have a bad experience. You don't do a whole host of these things. You you play the long-term game. And I think that the most successful businesses right now, that that's what they're doing. And so they, they do things where they have the value metric that we just talked about. That means, hey, it's going to be a small upfront because you're just going to start using it with one team. But the hope is, is that you're going to expand it across the whole company, right? Uh, they do things where they onboard people and they do spend a little bit more upfront in order to make sure someone's the right customer rather than trying to go after you know just any customer. And so I think that it's a patience in playing the long-term game, which manifests itself in a lot of different ways. But that's the biggest thing. I think some some more tactical things I think is... A lot of us, you know, especially if you raise money, you're like, oh, let's go spend this money and get a bunch of customers. And I look at this one number, this one top number going up. But if you look at all those sub numbers, particularly the churn numbers, and they're all going in the wrong direction. Well, like maybe we should slow down and not spend all this money and let's like find the right customer. And so those are really the elements that we see in the most successful ones. Um, they're playing that long game, essentially. I want to touch on churn, and this is probably where we can finish up. You put out an amazing report. I, I think it was the definitive guide to churn, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> um, probably something clickbaity like that. Yeah, yeah nice. Yeah. Uh, and that analysis was huge. I would love to understand, like, what is a normal churn rate? What do you think is the max acceptable natural churn rate? It's a really good question, and unfortunately, I don't have like a picture perfect answer because <laughs> it really depends on like ARPU and vertical, right? So subscription boxes, um, they're, you know, something that's very popular in the States. Uh, not so much outside of the States quite yet, but I think they'll get there eventually. Um, those have, you know, very, very high monthly churn rate because you're fighting to get a bunch of people who want just a taste 
And then you're trying to get a, a small portion of those folks to stick around. But once those people stick around, they kind of stick around forever, right? Mm. Those types of companies, they're going to have high churn because they do a lot of promotions very similar to retail products, right? Whereas a um, you know a $10,000 a month B2B software product or a $100,000 a month B2B software product, there's probably not going to be a lot of churn. It's not going to be a lot of customers, but it's so relationship focused heavy up front that those particular customers, they're really vetted on both sides before they become a customer and then they're going to stick around for quite a long time. So I would say lower is always better. And to give you some benchmarks, I think if you're very low ARPU or, you know, a, a more volatile vertical like subscription boxes or sometimes mobile subscriptions, you know, something in the five to 10 range can be reality. I don't think I should say that that's acceptable because that's very high monthly gross churn. So this is five to 10% leave at the end of each month, which obviously compounds to a big number at the end of the year. That's a lot, right? And that's not the best of the best. That's just like, that's what we see, right? Yes. And if you're in a higher ARPU and maybe B2B, getting that down to, you know, one to 2% per month is good, you know, and, and this is gross revenue churn, right? So theoretically, you should have enough expansion revenue to overcome the gross revenue churn, that meaning people buying more of the existing product. But like you kind of alluded to, if you have 5% gross churn, or if you have 10% gross churn monthly, your whole customer base is leaving you know, <laughs> within a year, right? Theoretically, right? Uh, and so that's that's where it becomes tough. And, and lower is always better. But if you had a subscription box company that somehow is getting 1% monthly churn, my first instinct would to say, without seeing any numbers, is that they're not doing a lot of advertising, not doing a lot of acquisition. Or they have an amazing business. <laughs> Well, I, 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 I would, I probably would doubt that they had an amazing business because, um, I just think that, you know, it's, it's hard not to have very high churn rates in those businesses. The natural follow-on question from that is what then are the best leading indicators of churn? How can you potentially predict some of this churn beforehand? There's two big buckets of churn. There's, there's voluntary churn and involuntary churn. So involuntary churn is like credit card delinquencies. That's what we built like our retained product for. And leading indicators there are just kind of hard. Um, but what's great about that type of churn is it's purely mechanical. So a credit card failed or is about to expire, you know, there's things you can do. You can treat them as basically their own marketing channel to basically recover as many of those folks as possible. And you want to be recovering 70 to 80% of those people. So if 10 people's credit card fails, you want to make sure you're, you're recovering about seven to eight out of them. Most of us are only recovering about three out of 10 of those. Just to give you perspective. Oh, really? That's quite interesting because you effectively have subscriptions of people that don't care then. That's basically what it says. They don't care until their credit card expires. It's a little bit of a misnomer, right? Because normally what we find is that those people, there are certain subscriptions and this gets into some active churn or voluntary churn stuff. There's there's certain products where engagement is not a good indicator of value and it's not a good indication of churn or no churn. Interesting. So if you think about retain in and of itself, we call it an anti-active usage product. If you're logging in, there's probably a problem, right? There's probably <laughs> something you need to look at, right. right? So if your credit card fails, like we need to remind you because you know you're not in that product every day. Now, if you're thinking about like Salesforce.com, right, or like some CRM, if you're not logging in or using it then there's probably an issue where you're just not getting the value of it. There's a lot of products in between there, right? And so when I say that seven or eight number, if you were a product where you had to log in to get the value, that number would probably still be seven or eight, but it would be you wouldn't need to do a lot to get those folks back. 
Mm. And what's interesting here is we're kind of talking about churn from a little bit of a clinical perspective, from the business's perspective, right? Like we're looking at a number, a 1%, a 2% or a 10% and going, this is good or bad and this is going to have profit implications and that kind of thing. But I want to just kind of finish up by taking a look at this from a customer's perspective because- they're looking at a one-to-one relationship rather than a one-to-many. Um, they're not looking at a percentage of churn. They're just looking at, I'm currently paying X dollars per month for Y widgets or you know Z value. And they're making a decision at some point about whether that continues to be a value exchange that they want or not. What is going through a customer's mind at the moment that they're potentially thinking about cancelling or changing a plan or a relationship with a business? A lot of us think it's like pure frustration, right? Like, oh, F these guys, I'm going to cancel. That's our deepest fear, right? So we just assume everyone's like that. A lot of times it's like, oh, I don't, why are we buying this again? Or ah, I, I've been meaning to set that up, but like, ah, I just haven't been able to. And it's the third month I paid for it. Let me just like cancel it and I'll come back. That's where a lot of the customer perspective typically comes from. You know, occasionally there's, you know, it's, it's actually pretty rare, but it does happen where it's like, oh, I can't believe they did this thing. They tweeted this thing, or I can't believe they raised the price, or I can't believe they did that. So I'm going to cancel. But normally it's a misaligned value expectation, which is what we kind of started you know, the conversation off with, right? And so your job is to get in front of that, but realize you're not going to be able to get in front of every single one of them. We have some churn problems on one of our products, but with Retain, we have very, very low churn because the value is pegged right at, you know, hey, we did this for you and we're just taking this cut. You know, it's something that makes a lot of sense for a lot of customers. But the some churn that we've had are people like, hey, we're going out of business. So like we're shutting the whole thing down. And that's like, we're not going to be like, oh, crap, let's reduce this churn. You know, it's like we can't, there's nothing we can do, you know, at least at this point. Yeah, or some new executive come in and they have new priorities and you can't control that. (laughs) You're still delivering that value, but the perception of value due to people changes has changed. Totally. And so I think it's it's one of those things where you just have to think about what churn you're trying to solve. And from that customer perspective, I think you should always look at customers typically are looking at this as like, hey, I'm just not getting the value or I'm not using it or whatever. And so getting ahead of that is, is the most important thing you can do. But sometimes you just won't be able to. No, that's really excellent. Hey, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the show. We learned so much and we had a blast. Absolutely. Enjoyed it, guys. So, Michael, another wonderful episode. Uh, This one was very detail-filled, but a lot of great takeaways. Yes, absolutely. Price, like he said, is one of those topics that is up there with sex, religion, and politics. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm glad we got a chance to hit price head-on and with one of the industry experts, actually, around pricing. So, so much to unpack here. Really looking forward to discussing the takeaways. Maybe to kick things off, like I think the one big thing that hit me between the eyes and it was at the front of the episode, which was price is the value exchange rate. And actually thinking about it almost like an FX uh, exchange rate. And that value is set by expectations. I just thought that was such a great way to think about price. And also the elasticity of price actually is that it really is a value exchange rate. And that value is set by the customer's expectations. 
Yeah, and just to kind of build on that a little bit with the second takeaway, one thing that I really thought was quite interesting is that those expectations are obviously set by price in some fashion. So, the example Patrick gave was, you know, the really expensive gym that he goes to, he expects it to be spotless and flawlessly clean. But expectations are set by price and a range of other things. So, your packaging, your value proposition, the way your website looks, your marketing. And so, what was really interesting was, you know, we went into this discussion thinking that price was one of these kind of key big scary things that businesses go through when they're trying to develop and sell a product. But actually, I think the thing that we should really be worried about instead is the customer expectations and all the factors that, you know, we're using to set those. And so, whether you're building something that's premium, middle of the market or, you know, a volume style business, you need to understand the way that uh, you're communicating to customers what that price and that value expectation should be. Absolutely. And it's, it's often like a knee-jerk reaction if someone wants to increase their sales or they're a bit worried that there's been a bit of a dip. The first thing they go to is reduce the price because that's like the quick, easy way to do it. But actually, like you're probably worth spending more time thinking about packaging, messaging, marketing, delivery, all the things that signal value because in the exchange rate, you don't want to just be lowering your price all the time. Like you want to be upping the expectations and the value because that allows you to at least keep prices the same, if not raise them over time. Takeaway number three was that there's actually a bit of a science to setting prices. Yes, I loved this. So, the key takeaway here really is to find the correct price, use the process. And what that involves is getting outside the walls of the business and actually going and talking to people. You know, there's kind of some practical elements to this. Get real feedback from people. And, you know, Patrick talks about asking questions about what's the maximum and the minimum price that this would be. And you get real information that you can make decisions with. And if you do this enough times with enough people, then you basically will have more information than your competitors and be able to set the right price for the right customer. Which leads me to the fourth takeaway, which is there are signals that tell you when your price is too low. And those signals are things like no one's complaining about your price, no one's leaving you because of your price, and that your average revenue per user or your average basket size is not going up over time. If those three things are happening, then you have a pricing problem, your price is too low. And so, I think sort of combining those two together, if you're seeing those signals, then you should absolutely be going to takeaway number three, (laughs) which is (laughs) use the process to find your ideal price, right? Because you're leaving money on the table. Takeaway number five was that there's some really easy practical tips to start today to reduce churn and the thing that stood out for me here is when you do have customers leave you it's not because they're angry and they're pissed off and they're going screw this and they're like deleting the credit card info and never coming back it's really that they're apathetic and there's been a gap in the delivery between expectations and the value received so really the best way to solve that gap is actually to go back and listen to episode 33 and the sort of customer success method, which is regularly checking in with customers, ensuring that you're delivering on that value, ensuring that you're syncing on those expectations. And that is the best way to reduce churn. So, let's sum the five takeaways up. Yeah. So, number one is price is the exchange rate of the value you're delivering. Takeaway number two is value is set by expectations and expectations are set by your price, your packaging, your value proposition and your product delivery. Takeaway number three, there is a simple process to setting the ideal price. So, make sure you use it. And number four, be aware of the known signals of when your pricing is too low. And number five, when your customers are leaving, they're not angry. There's some easy tips to reduce churn. 
If you enjoyed this episode, Michael and I would love to hear from you. Please add us on LinkedIn. You can find me. I'm Adam Jaffrey. And I'm Michael Momsen, M-O-M for Mary, S-E-N for Nelly. And we'll pop a link in the show notes for both of our profiles. Thanks so much for listening. See ya. Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by Rate It, a better way to listen to your customers. Rate It is the easiest and most delightful way for your customers to share their feedback with you. Their platform is trusted by brands like Adidas, Disney and Aldi to help improve their customer experiences. So, to find out more, head to the website rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. This show is made in partnership with Wavelength Creative. This episode was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who edited and mixed the episode. Our theme music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. I'm Adam Jaffrey. Until next time, we'll speak to you soon. Listener.